0: We're going to read from the Bible now. I'm going to read from Matthew 7, verse 21 to 24. Uh, I believe it will be on screen. You can also read on the app on your phone. The Bible's in your pews, or you can just listen to my voice. Matthew 7, verse 21 to 24. And puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Bryce. These are heavy words. Um, And yeah, it's been uh, just a very uh, convicting time uh, preparing to speak on them this morning. Uh, But yeah. Let's just dive in. Um, so this morning we are continuing uh, on our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And we are drawing uh, near to the end of it. This is the second last paragraph of teaching. And, and uh, we've been seeing for the last couple of weeks that as Jesus approaches the end of the sermon, he's he shifted his focus from... Uh, developing and adding to the content of the main body of the sermon, and now he's focused almost exclusively on matters of application. He spent two and a half chapters explaining and showing what the life of a disciple ought to look like. and Now he's challenging his listeners to respond wisely to his words. Um, two weeks ago, Pastor Paul began preaching on the choice that Jesus is laying out before his followers and us in in, in his passage, um, and he asks, "Are you in or are you out?" Right, having heard all that's involved, having been shown what it's going to cost you, what's it going to be? Right, will you take the hard road of absolute submission to the lordship of Christ, or will you go your own way? Here, at the conclusion of this. Very heavy sermon. Jesus is driving home the fact that we all must make a decision. Will you assume this cost or not, right? Neutrality is not an option. Uh, I think of the words of Canadian prog rock legends, the band Rush. Uh, If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice, right? That's what they say. Lukewarmness will not be tolerated. You cannot hedge your bets. Nothing short of definite, absolute, single-mindedness is what is being asked. And that's a little bit scary. And so now, assuming that everyone who is left standing there listening to Jesus at this point in the sermon, uh, assuming that all of them have chosen option A, Jesus presses even harder, identifying two major pitfalls that keep would-be disciples from actually following him in obedience, right? He says, as we heard last week from Pastor Paul, that we can be deceived and misled by others, right? Uh, We need to be discerning about who we give the power of influence to in our lives. Can we trust the people who have our ear and our minds to not steer us astray, right? So there's a danger of being deceived or misled by others, but here in our passage this morning, Jesus goes on to say that we have to be careful not to deceive and mislead ourselves, Jesus is graciously warning us that we have a problem that must be thought through, right? The human heart is deceitful above all things. Jeremiah 17 says, and in our passage today, Jesus proposes a, a searing and a searching challenge to us, but one that we would be wise to take, one that we would be wise to examine our lives and hearts in light of. And we can do so by proposing, or posing rather, a few simple questions to ourselves. Uh, the metaphor that links these two pitfalls together in Jesus' teaching here is, the war, is recognizing a tree by its fruit, right? We heard a little bit about that last week. Um, and so we're going to ask the questions, first, am I bearing fruit? Secondly, is that fruit good or bad? And then third, we're going to ask, what do we love? do we love most? So we'll start at the top of the passage in seven twenty-one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, Jesus says. So am I bearing fruit is the question that we're asking, right? And Luke's account of this teaching is actually a little bit more direct. There Jesus says, uh, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Right, Jesus is addressing the fact that at least some, if not Many, as he says in verse 22, uh, of his followers, or of those who claim to be his followers, and may even look pretty convincing to others, uh, many of them are in fact not legitimate followers. And Jesus makes no bones about what this means uh, in that day. right? Referring to the day of judgment, referring to the day when we will have to give an answer for what we devoted our earthly lives to. And he's saying that in that day, he will disown All of his illegitimate followers. These are terrifying words. And I don't know about you, but when when I read them, I I get chilled. (laughs) The the hair on my arm stands up. Right? Can you imagine being there on Judgment Day and hearing Jesus say, I never knew you? Just a terrifying idea. Right? And you realize that the people that Jesus is referring to here, they address him as Lord, Lord, right? Not one Lord, but two. And a good Hebrew, like Jesus, uh, they know that repetition is emphatic, right? And so you have to understand that he's not talking about people who, who reject him casually. He's talking about people who enthusiastically claim his name for themselves. Right? He's, he's talking about uh, people who have no problem publicly aligning themselves with him right these these are people who think they are saved yet jesus says they will not enter the kingdom of heaven so how can i be sure that i am not one of these illegitimate disciples right what could possibly be a more important question to answer jesus begins to answer it at the end of verse 21 where he says that the one who does the will of my father is a legitimate disciple but let's think about this right what does he actually mean by this is he saying that the way that a person can know that they are legitimately saved is if they do good works right after all james says that faith without works is dead is jesus saying that if I call myself a Christian, if I'm a decent person, you know, if I go to church, if I you know, maybe volunteer my, some of my time in service or give some money to some good causes, does that mean I'm good to go? Right? Can I rest easy then knowing that I'm saved? The answer is no, emphatically no. The entire Protestant Reformation hinged on this, this issue. right? James 2, what he says is in that same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead, right? He goes on to say, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder, right? So good works or obedience are the necessary fruit of faith, though they are not what actually secures your salvation, right? It's about, but it's not enough to simply say that we believe in Jesus, Or that Jesus is God, right? James says even the demons do that. And they're certainly not saved. Right? So it's not a mere profession that that Jesus is Lord that saves you. Okay? Good works do not save us, but they are necessary indicators that we are saved, is what James is saying here. But the problem is that by nature, we are all prone to riding the fence when it comes to Jesus We're all prone to being what uh, Dallas Willard called vampire Christians, Uh, by which he meant people people who call themselves followers of Christ, but who really only want the benefit of salvation that comes from faith in him, right? We don't actually want to submit our lives and wills to him, right? We don't want to give up our autonomy. We'll readily call ourselves Christians in order to secure the forgiveness of our sins, but we don't actually want to surrender everything to Christ's lordship right i want to do what i want to do with my life i don't want to be told what i have to do with my life but jesus says that the very baseline expectation for his followers is that they not only listen to and give mental assent to what he says but that they actually put it into action right he's poking and prodding at our deceitful hearts and warning us to make sure that we've actually counted and accepted the cost of discipleship, right? And we're not just simply saying that we have. True submission to the Lordship of Jesus is impossible without the working of the Holy Spirit, right? We will submit ourselves to nothing above ourselves unless the Holy Spirit first convicts and breaks us of the pride that naturally enslaves all of fallen humanity. And Jesus says that the, the most basic entry-level evidence of that kind of submission is to do what he says. This is the natural fruit of faith. Okay, so question one is am I bearing fruit? Does my life display this baseline evidence of saving faith? If the answer is yes, then good, that's great. That's fantastic, but this is only a baseline, right? Now Jesus turns the heat up, right? He says uh, in, in verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles, right? Just, just as everyone is starting to exhale and breathe a, breathe a sigh of relief, right? Everyone's letting themselves off of the hook. Uh, Jesus does what he's been doing all throughout the sermon, right where he makes an initial proposition and just when you think yeah that's fine i can i can handle that then he expands on the initial initial proposition in such a way that it cuts right through to the very heart of the matter right is our fruit legitimate is our fruit actually good fruit here jesus warns us that even outward displays of great piety are no guarantee that our profession is credible or that our salvation is secure the truth is that we can use good deeds as camouflage for our disobedience and our half-hearted devotion. We can fool one another with our lives, and we can't know for certain what's in the heart of another person. We can staple very convincing artificial fruit all over a dead tree, but that doesn't make it alive. Right? We may even convince everyone around us, but Jesus isn't fooled. And he's the one whose opinion really matters, right? He is the judge in the end. Uh, It's like counterfeit diamonds. I think, you know, they could be very convincing to the untrained eye. I mean, I probably wouldn't even begin to know what to look for. But to one who truly knows diamonds, they're spotted quickly, right? That's why you bring them to a jeweler to be appraised. Um, And so Jesus, you know, he is not fooled by counterfeit fruit, (laughs) counterfeit obedience, right? The presence of fruit doesn't necessarily make a disciple legitimate. And so in order to drive his point home, Jesus uses some pretty extreme examples of faith evidenced by outward works, right? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, right? Prophesying exorcisms and miracle working, right? And all done in Jesus' name. <clears throat> it seems likely that Jesus uses these examples because his closest followers, right, the 12, who would go on to be the apostles, they did all these things regularly throughout his earthly ministry, presumably including Judas, right? And so we have an example in Jesus' own inner circle of someone who seemed to everyone else to be a very impressive specimen Of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus, right? But Jesus knew Judas's heart. He knew that in the not-so-distant future, Jesus, or Judas rather, would sell him out for a little bit of money. So this is an implicit warning here. Not to be easily impressed by outward displays of piety or even highly effective ministry. Right? In, In in Philippians 1, Paul talks about. Uh rivals of his who are effectively preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition. Right? They're, these are men who clearly have illegitimate motives and yet they're effectively publicly preaching the gospel. Uh, and, and how about John the Baptist? Uh, you know, in the passage immediately preceding when he baptizes Jesus, uh he has some harsh words for the religious leaders who are hanging around at that time. He calls them a brood of vipers. And then he goes on and he says this. This is from Matthew 3. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. These were Pharisees and teachers of the law, right? They were revered and well-known for their strict piety and impressive knowledge of the scriptures. And John basically says to them, do not think that you can presume upon your religious heritage or your position or your traditions or your knowledge. If you do not produce real fruit fruit in keeping with repentance, you too are in mortal danger. John says this, these kind of religious superstars in the eyes of everyone else, right? But they too, they too are in danger of this. And haven't we learned this lesson enough in recent years, especially in the church in the West here? How many well-known and even effective spiritual leaders have been exposed as leading completely incongruous double lives? Right, but before we cast stones or begin to think that jesus words here only apply to those who are in high profile ministry positions we need to recognize that while yes those people failed in spectacularly public fashion we might be just like them right because we're not under the scrutiny of the masses so nobody happens to notice yet right paul warns in first corinthians 10 he says If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall, right? No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, right? We are all bent towards secretly crowning ourselves as Lord of our own lives and simply trying not to let other people find out. We're no different. So how can we know? Right? How do we know if we are just outwardly going through the motions of the life of a legitimate disciple? How can we discern if our fruit is good? How can we know if our faith is a saving faith? Uh, I referenced Jeremiah 17 earlier where he says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Right? God goes on there and he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct according to what their deeds deserve did you catch that the lord searches the heart and the mind in order to judge the outward behaviors of a person right we get it wrong when we focus first or exclusively on outward things right, on what we say or what we do. Jesus' point is that we can say we believe in him all we want, right, and we can do amazing things in his name until we're blue in the face. If it doesn't flow out of a heart that knows him and loves him, above all else, it's worthless. Right? In fact, he calls such a person an evildoer. Three times, Jesus says, these false disciples repeat that they've done these things in his name, right? Revealing, actually, a very transactional relationship with Christ, right? They're saying, look, look at these things we did for you. We've paid our entry fee, right? Jesus says, no, you didn't. You didn't do those things for me. You did them for yourself. I never knew you. If you are a Christian only because you are scared of the idea of hell and you think that by doing good things or being a good person you can escape it, then you are not a Christian. Right? You don't have a saving relationship with Jesus then. You're just using him. Now, trust me when I say that I am preaching this to myself. Uh, I I spent all week just really, really struggling with this passage, and and the reality is that I myself am in constant danger of loading up my schedule with ministry things, with good things, with things done in his name, right? But when I get too busy, the first things to slip are not my scheduled appointments with other people, right? The first things to slip are often the time spent cultivating a relationship with Jesus, Time spent seeking his face in his word. Time spent enjoying his presence in prayer. Time spent glorifying him in worship. The truth is that we can make ourselves really busy doing things for him. While at the very same time completely neglecting to nurture a real relationship with him. But that is not what he asks us to do. Right? He doesn't ask us to run ourselves ragged to prove our devotion to him. That's a human impulse. Right? No matter how well-intentioned we may be, that isn't what it looks like to do the will of God. What he asks us for is love. What he asks us for are the affections of our hearts. Jesus summarizes the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures with the law of love. He says it can all be summarized in loving God and loving our neighbor, right? Jesus says it all hangs on love. The highest expression of obedience to Jesus is to love him. And the strictest adherence to the letter of the law cannot save anyone unless it is motivated by that love. Paul says in his famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And so the real question, the only question that gets deep enough to truly diagnose us, is what do I love? What do I love? When you inevitably stand before Jesus, the great judge who knows our hearts and minds on that day, what or who will he say you lived your life for? What will he say you loved most? Uh, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this passage in April of 1877. And I was reading the transcript of that sermon this week. And in it, he said this. He says, what is the chief object of your life? Will you think as much of it in that day as you do now? Will you then count yourself wise to have earnestly pursued it? You fancy that you can defend it now, but will you be able to defend it then? When all the things of earth and time have melted into nothingness. That is the question we have to ask ourselves. What do you love most? What are you earnestly pursuing with your life? Will it be able to bear the weight of all your hope in the end? Will it last? I was reading another book uh, earlier this week, and I came across a quote there, and he put it this way, talking about the same thing. He said, are you living your life with the next 50 years in view or the next 50 million? Right? Are you living in light of eternity or are you just living for the here and now? That is what Jesus is asking us to consider. Seriously consider. Will we prize him above all else? Will he be able to say that he knew us? That is the crux of the issue. John 10, Jesus famously says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Do you know Jesus? And I mean, do you really know Jesus? Not uh, in some casual way, not like a work acquaintance, but as the lover of your soul, as the one for whose embrace you were created. This is why we insist on everyone writing a personal testimony when you want to come into membership here. We want you to sit down and to really think about what Jesus means to you. It is the most important thing you could consider. Do you commune with him? Do you abide in him? Do you trust him? Not perfectly, of course. None of us can do that. But do you desire to know and to please your Savior with every facet of your life? Or are you holding something back? Look, if you are feeling crushed by this, as I was early in this week as I was preparing, um, let me share with you the sweetest insight the Holy Spirit shared with me. Though this passage reads like a somber warning, and it is, it is also a beautiful invitation. It is not too late. That is the graciousness in Jesus' warning to us in this passage, right? In the scenario that Jesus is describing in the text for these people, it is too late, right? But he warns us in love so that we don't find ourselves standing there on the edge of eternity only to finally wake up and to realize that our faith was just an act. He is inviting us to make it real now. Today is the day to figure this out. Not on that day, as Jesus wants. Take inventory. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and to reveal to you the areas of your life that you are holding out against Jesus. Then ask for the strength to give them over to him in true faith. Right? This this warning of Jesus isn't meant to make you feel unsure of your salvation, but rather to draw you into deeper communion with him. Right? All the benefits of Christianity flow from a true relationship with Jesus through vital connection with him. He is divine. We are grafted into him, fused with him. Connected to him, right? And it's only then that the the lifeblood of the vine can flow through us, right? It's only then that we can experience the rest and the joy and the peace and the security and the power of Jesus. Why would anyone settle for a superficial and impotent approximation of this relationship? Those of us who truly love Jesus can enjoy ultimate unwavering assurance of our right standing with him because he will never deny those whom he knows as his own. In fact, he cannot deny those who he knows as his own, right? They, uh, often in, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses the language of being in Christ, right? When we're joined to Christ, one with him. And he says this in Second Timothy, he says... If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot disown himself. That's what Paul says. If you are in Christ, if you're joined to Christ, he will never disown you. But be sure of that. Commune with him, abide in him. He invites you to enjoy all the peace and joy and assurance that flow from knowing him and being known by him. And he's removed every obstacle and barrier to that kind of relationship for us. It's an invitation without condition. There are no reasons to hesitate. Come and know him. Pray with me. Lord, Lord, King Jesus, we come to you having just heard your gracious invitation to us, and we lay our lives at your feet. Lord, we want to know you, and we want to be known by you and experience your perfect love, the kind of love that casts out every fear. Jesus, we do not know why you've chosen to set your love and affection on us, but we thank and praise you for your precious grace. You are the lover of our souls. The very purpose of our existence is for relationship with you. And what could possibly be more beautiful and more compelling than that? Jesus, strip away anything in us that causes us to hesitate or to hold back from true full enjoyment of your love transform us by it we pray amen all right Um, pastor Paul is away and uh, we did not make provisions for us to be able to celebrate communion this morning unfortunately because that would be really great to do right now but I think we do have time if there are any questions I'll do my very best to field them but uh, okay, I have a couple by text anyway that I hopefully can this one's really long what is that? oh yes, sorry, sermon breakout if you're in grade 5 or 6 go for it address that one later because I'm not really sure what that Uh, (laughs) this is a hard teaching who then can be saved man only those who put their faith and their hope and their love and all of the affections of their heart on Jesus Christ Uh, and he will empower you to do it if that is your prayer Uh, You don't have to worry about your faith being weak or feeling inadequate. He will supply everything that you require if it is your earnest prayer to be known by him.